Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. I am your host, Daniel McDonald. Go to Google, type in the word woman, and your first result might be the official video for Doja Cat's 2021 song entitled Woman. In the video for Woman, the popular singer depicts the female ruler of a futuristic desert kingdom who must use her irresistible feminine allure to disarm a roomful of shirtless male insurrectionists. Now go back to Google and search female heroes. If the algorithm serves you up the same results as me, the British Broadcasting Corporation's International Women's Day list of amazing women who changed the world receives equal billing with therap.com's list of 24 badass female superheroes from Batwoman to She-Ra and more. Who says saving the world in spandex is just for the guys? And on a third attempt, Google defines the word goddess as a female deity or a woman who is adored, especially for her beauty. And you can learn exactly what they mean by beauty when you click over to do an image search. In her new book, The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture, Georgia College Literature and Women and Gender Studies professor Mary Magulik dives deep into these depictions of goddesses and powerful women to try and understand whether or not our culture is making progress against a world order that privileges men at all levels. Mary Magulik, thank you for coming back to Georgia College Connections. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. It is my pleasure to host. So I wanted to start off with giving our audience a sense of who you're researching and describing this book. Can you describe the goddesses in the way we experience them as you examine in your book, The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture? Yes. So the interesting thing, just considering this topic in broad strokes, is that we have so many characters who are identifiable as goddesses that show up in our literature and popular culture. That's been the case for a pretty long time, certainly throughout what would anybody would identify as like the modern era, say, since we've had film and television. But before that, we had them in literature and comic books and so on. And if they're identifiable as a goddess, which is to say they're either referred to as a god or a goddess within their world, or they're a being that has a sort of level of power and longevity that is beyond any sort of mortal human possibility, some of those I include and interpret as goddesses as well. So I have a relatively loose idea of what could constitute a goddess. And I look at examples where the goddesses are pretty significant characters in their worlds. Although I do have a couple of books, for instance, that I look at where there aren't any actual goddess characters per se, but the human characters in the book rely on or turn to or find a form of goddess culture 
which is sort of the goddess myth of that there was a prehistory and that was dominated by goddesses and probably matriarchy where women ruled. And thinking about this imagined past, this purported past, gives the characters comfort. So it's a sort of goddess culture-esque type of community in which they live, and that advances the plot to some significant extent. I look at a few of those as well. So this could be anybody from somebody like a Wonder Woman type character to figures from television shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or its spinoff Angel from HBO series like True Blood from recent Marvel comic universe films like Thor Ragnarok and from fiction by women writers like Marion Zimmer Bradley, who some of you might be familiar with her work that was also made into a film called The Mists of Avalon, or the phenomenally best-selling author Jean Owl, spelled A-U-E-L, whose Earth's Children series follows an amazing woman character who's not a goddess, but who learns about the predominance of the goddess during the time when she lives, which is the Upper Paleolithic period in Europe about 30,000 years ago. And her world is a matriarchal world that worships the goddess. So I look at some of those books as well. Her most famous book is probably The Clan of the Cave Bear. And then there's some very contemporary writers as well who are speculative fiction writers, women like N.K. Jemison, who's a recent MacArthur Genius Grant awardee, uh, Tomi Adeyemi, who's gotten a lot of acclaim. These are both Black writers. There are Native American writers and others, like Madeline Miller, whose work Circe, some of you might know, it was on the bestseller list for a long time. And it's a wonderful work, which turns the goddess Circe into the main character, sort of humanizes her in a way, but she is literally a Greek goddess in that work. And is there one who initially drew you in and didn't maybe give you the idea that you would write this book, uh, but gave you the uh, desire to learn more? That might be something like The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, which came out in 2003, which is right around the time I was thinking along these lines of maybe developing some kind of work because I was also doing some research in the tourism of prehistory in southern, southwestern France. And, you know, that book, The Da Vinci Code, was a bestseller that also got made into a major feature film starring Tom Hanks and Audrey Tautou. And if you haven't heard of the book, read it, or watched the film, it posits that there is a sort of female goddess tradition even within Christianity so that Mary Magdalene is considered to have been the wife of Jesus and their descendant is one of the main characters in the book who gets referred to sometimes as Princess Sophie. And she is sort of a living embodiment, and she doesn't know it, and she gets introduced to all these ideas of the goddess myth and goddess culture throughout the course of that book. And that helped me connect things that I was reading about and considering based on my travels in France. And then also 
There's a couple of really good books that came across around that time by other scholars who are questioning the whole goddess myth and the idea of a goddess-centered prehistory. One of those is The Myth of Matriarchal Prehistory by Cynthia Eller, and the other one is a collection by about a dozen feminist archaeologists, and they focus on different parts of the world where the goddess is presumed to have predominated, where they have found so-called goddess figurines in prehistory. And all of those things kind of came together to put me on the path of thinking about this. But as you can see, it was a long time ago. It took a really long time to pull this all together and to start thinking about and seeing these other goddesses in films, in television, in books that I had read or was reading. And so originally, I actually had quite a few more goddesses in the first manuscript that I sent to the publisher, but I ended up cutting out maybe half of them. Well, can you describe that time before you found that one work that kind of turned you on uh, and got you to go down this road of of research and writing? Uh, What was your feeling about goddesses and goddess culture uh, prior to uh, being turned on by the Da Vinci Code, if, if that's an appropriate way to say it? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, it was very different. I thought goddess culture was a very positive thing. I thought the goddess myth was sort of beautiful. And this idea that we had this prehistory dominated by goddesses was very appealing. And part of the goddess myth is, and, and what I mean by the goddess myth overall is just the acceptance of the story that our prehistory was dominated by goddesses and that women perhaps were the rulers, it was matriarchal, and it was perceived as a very peaceful time, very environmentally balanced, very socially successful, that people were living happy, peaceful lives in almost a utopian type of agrarian setting. They were farmers, and everything was peaceful and wonderful. So it It's exciting to think about that past. It's a beautiful vision. It's a beautiful myth. But as I started learning a little bit more about prehistory, I started seeing that most contemporary prehistorian, and this is prehistorians for at least 50 years, have really questioned, if not outright rejected, those ideas. The idea of a matriarchal society. That was peaceful. Mm -hmm. That was long-lasting. So we're talking about some versions of the myth situate the origins of goddess culture as far back as the Upper Paleolithic, maybe 30,000 years ago, like the time of Owl's books. And then they bring it all the way through up until, you know, the stamping out of paganism in Europe in the early Middle Ages. And they seem to suggest that it was pretty continuous, or at least there were aspects of it that were continuous, like the idea of a great goddess, which they often conceived of as as this sort of unitary, almost, well, according to some scholars, almost like a substitution for the Christian god, so that instead of this unitary god, there was this unitary goddess, and women ruled rather than men ruling, and therefore things were better. It was, like I say, appealing from an outsider perspective. But as I dug deeper into the material, I started realizing that there are issues with that perspective. 
On this edition of Georgia College Connections, you're listening to a conversation with Georgia College Women's and Gender Studies in Literature Professor Mary Magulik about her book, The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture. The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture is out now from the University Press of Mississippi. Mary Magulik joined me to talk about her book in March 2022. things that you explore really in this book is is about myths. What what are myths and what can we derive from that word and how we use it? Yeah, thanks for that question. The word myth is certainly often used by the general public in colloquial everyday English. We use it all the time and we do often use it meaning untruth. That's just a myth, right? It's not true. And that also signals that maybe it's not particularly important. Yet a lot of people in our culture, I think, also recognize that myth has just enough gravitas to be maybe a little more important than that kind of it's just a myth phrase signals. So we probably recognize that it stretches back at least to like ancient Greece, right? And we think of ancient Greece as an inspiration for our democracy. And we think we have certain connections with that culture that we sort of value. I mean, most people can probably name a number of Greek gods and goddesses. In the world of people who study myth academically, myth does have some particular definitional parameters. However, even within the world of mythology of scholars who just really specialize on myth, and I'm sort of one of them, There's no definitive agreed upon single definition of myth, so it's a little bit hard to say, but often it's referred to as a sacred narrative. So that means a narrative that maybe is connected to some specific belief tradition that has religious connections. It might be part of a religious text, or it might just have a sort of sacred tinge to it. It might be stories that are used during rituals, which can have a level of sacredness to them. Or often there are functional aspects of it that people focus on, for instance, that it provides foundational values for people in a society. So it gives you these metaphorical truths about how to live. Literally, most people say myths are true stories of the distant past. They're set back often in the origin of time. Origin myths are sort of a subgenre of myth. They don't, though, have to be literally true. You can still accept them as being metaphorically true and see them as having very profound effect on your life. But I think there, you can also consider myth coming forward, not necessarily set in that primordial, long, long ago, earlier, different world that is the setting of myths, but you can see myths that things that provide foundational values that become patterns that become sort of worldview forming signposts or important cultural moments like 
the founding fathers seem almost like these mythical figures in our culture, or we can talk about things like a Star Trek mythology or a Star Wars mythology, right? Because those are just television shows or films, and yet they have had these profound worldview-changing effects. Like people talk about the dark side, going over to the dark side, right? And they got that largely, I think, from Star Wars. Well, that's the way I think of them myself. I think of them as uh, oftentimes fantastical stories that communicate truths that provide or speak to a worldview in a way to live. And so uh, many times myself, my own, uh, they need not be true at all. They may have fantastical creatures, um, you know, anthropomorphize different things, but they are always communicating something that's important and something that can be useful in the day-to-day or throughout the arc of one's life. In fact, all art whether you're talking about paintings or films or literature or music, all art is interpretable. It's got deeper levels often than just what you see on the surface. And it's digging into those deeper levels, the symbolism, the metaphorical messages, the worldviews that get communicated by these works that are the kinds of things we scholars of artistic creations like to look at and like to interpret. And that's a lot of what I end up doing in my book is I really dig in and say, what's going on? Okay, so here are these symbols, these goddesses, these powerful women who are populating our movie screens, our you know television screens, the pages of our books. What's really going on at a deeper level in those? And that's the work of the book. And the messages that I started perceiving in them, you know, and even as a relatively casual viewer, I'm always thinking about trying to think, you know, wait, what's what's really going on here, right? Because that's how I'm trained and that's my job. And I'm trying to train students to think that way and approach texts that way, all kinds of texts. A film can be a text, a television show can be a text. So, so yeah, I started seeing these different messages and worldview that were fitting certain patterns. And and myths often do fit particular patterns that often boil down into these structurally dualistic patterns where there's binary oppositions of like, you know, good and bad or light and dark, hot and cold. Those are dualities. So yes, myths work interestingly. Well, of course, um, in your book, you identify patterns in the way powerful women and goddesses in the way that they are portrayed in popular culture. You know, what are some of the patterns that you found in the stories you examined? It changes over time. But for a lot of them, there's one of two main ways that goddesses seem to be portrayed. So they're either vilified, and that gets done most often in film and television, and in the film industry and television, goddesses are vilified. So they are forces of darkness. They are chaotic. They are violent. They must be stopped, usually by, you know, heroic men, but not always. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the good goddesses. So the bad goddesses dominate in film and television, and then the good goddesses dominate in speculative fiction by women in particular. And these are romanticized. So while the bad goddesses were vilified, they're like really bad. 
you can't imagine, in some cases, a worse force in their worlds. The good goddesses or the cultures they represent, like this prehistoric matriarchal utopia, is romanticized as wonderful. So you have these, you know, beautiful, peaceful goddesses who are forces of good or that the worlds they live in are superior worlds, at least from the perspective of the main characters who who worship the goddesses or, you know, admire them. Those were superior times in a superior culture. Now, there are some contemporary goddesses in recent years, often by BIPOC writers, and BIPOC means uh, Black Indigenous people of color, um, but other some non-BIPOC writers as well, who are starting to be a little more complex. So they're a little bit more in the middle of those two extremes, which I cover in Chapter 6, right before the conclusion, as sort of the best examples we have of goddesses right now in our culture. But yes, they tend to be either really bad or sort of impossibly perfectly good. And of course, you just introduced the element of time there. Of course, you're looking at contemporary culture. How does the time that you're examining in the book differ from what has come before in the depictions of women and especially powerful women and goddesses? Well, interestingly, there have been powerful women depicted in most cultures throughout time. Like you can go back to ancient Greece, right? That's where the Amazons originated, Goddesses had a place, and they could be very powerful. Women characters had a place, and they could be very powerful. But the pattern you tend to see, if you look, say, at Greek myth, is that ultimately, the like, for instance, the Amazons that we might know by name and whose stories we know a little bit about, like Hippolyte, I think it's pronounced, she has a girdle of her power. So a girdle is like uh, not what we think of as a girdle, but it's a, a kind of like a belt, a fancy belt. This is sort of similar to a crown in terms of its symbolism of the power of the person wearing it. Maybe it was jeweled. Maybe it was golden. And one of, powers. Yes, one of the 12 labors of Heracles, but usually known in our culture as Hercules, was to steal that girdle to basically take away her power, the symbol of her power, and he does so. So we see her being, you know, defeated. And then people might also remember Penthesilea, I think is her name, from the Iliad, who is the Amazon warrior that shows up at the Trojan War to fight on the side of the Trojans against the Greeks. And she and Achilles sort of make eye contact across the battlefield. And Achilles recognizes, wow, here is my equal, in a woman. And he sort of falls in love with her because she's the most amazing woman warrior he's ever seen. But what happens is he makes his way across the battlefield and they fight and he kills her. <laughs> and he's sort of a little sad about it. Maybe, maybe I'm interpreting there. But the point is, we see these women defeated. These powerful women are not allowed to hold on to their power. They're not allowed to exist within this patriarchal culture. And Women had very limited roles in the Greek culture. They did have a role, and they were valued in various ways. And there are really interesting things that we can look into in the lives of women in ancient Greece that are absolutely worth studying. But the fact that they had goddesses, the fact that they had these powerful women characters, does not mean 
that women had a level of freedom or that, that the culture was in any way matriarchal or that they were considered equal to men within the literature or within the culture. We, in Western European culture, started valorizing Amazons and retelling their stories, you might be surprised to know, way back. But I just stop you. Just You've used the word Amazons a couple of times, and I'm not sure, especially with um, the usage of that word in modern times, that I understand exactly what you're talking about. Can you tell us, what, what is an Amazon? Well, <laughs> so much of what we think about of Amazons, right, is filtered through the pop culture versions mm-hmm. of them. But they were a group of warrior women from, I think scholars think that if this culture existed, that maybe was a matriarchal culture where women could take these leadership roles and warrior roles, maybe was around current days, Bulgaria area. So it was sort of near Greece. It was like an adjoining country. And so there were stories about them in ancient Greece Like I say, there are those two examples. There's not a lot of other information known about them. So people felt free starting in the early Middle Ages by about the 4th, 5th century in Europe to just start telling stories about them, other stories about them. And in some of the stories, usually in most of the stories, they're vanquished. This comes forward into the modern era through the suffragette movement. So by the late 19th century, In the U.S. and Western Europe and other places, women are fighting for the right to vote. And there's a real rise in feminism. A lot of men are feminist. A lot of scholars are feminist in this time period, sort of end of 19th century through really, I guess, maybe the world wars. There's quite a decent amount of embracing of feminism, early embracing of it. And at that point, we start getting more Amazonian stories that valorize these women as heroic, although in many cases they are still nevertheless punished or their sources of power are taken away from them. And Wonder Woman is one that many people might be familiar with, who was originally a comic created by William Moulton Marston. And he probably copied a couple of pre-existing works, both a novel called Angel Island And then another comic series, I think, that he seems to have heavily borrowed from. There's a great book by Jill Lepore, an historian at Harvard, who uh, it's called The Secret History of Wonder Woman that I recommend. But Wonder Woman is an Amazon who comes to live in the modern world. When Moulton is writing this, it's around the uh, 40s, I think, or 30s, 40s, maybe. And she works with an American... Uh, she joins up with the Justice League at one point, just not dissimilar from the current movies, although the current movies are the ones that make her into the goddess character she is in Patty Jenkins' versions of her. Up until then, she really was just an Amazon. So an Amazon is a woman warrior is the simple answer <laughs> that may or may not have really existed in history, but there are references to them in Greek myths. On this edition of Georgia College Connections, you're listening to a conversation with Georgia College Women's and Gender Studies in Literature Professor Mary Magulik about her book, The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture. 
The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture is out now from the University Press of Mississippi. Mary Magulik joined me to talk about her book in March 2022. Another part of the book that I really enjoyed uh, learning more about um, was our use of prehistory. Might you describe uh, prehistory and especially the ways that we use prehistory? Yeah, and that's a good way of putting it because we do use it. Prehistory is basically before there were written records. And it's a really long period. If you're talking in Europe from probably about 40,000 years before the present up until about 10,000 years before the present. So that's a 30,000-year span. You cannot assume that the culture was static during that period. There must have been quite a variety of ways that people lived. But it's an interesting period in Europe because there's what people refer to as an explosion of art during the Upper Paleolithic in Europe. Things like cave art that you might have heard of at places like Lascaux in France or Altamira in Spain. But also there's not just stuff that's painted on cave walls. There's mobile art. There's stuff carved and probably originally painted on antlers, on rocks, on bones, and uh, so on. And as I began, I just happened to have this trip where I was doing some touring around this region of southwestern France in Dordogne or uh, La Vézère Valley, which is a beautiful region in and of itself. It gets a lot of tourism just for the natural beauty there. But there's also all these sites of prehistory that you can visit. And I started just really getting interested in it and reading more about it. And I realized that these ideas of the goddess myth that, you know, maybe I had found appealing and positive, are not very realistic. So we can glean limited details of people's cultures from archaeological science. It doesn't mean we can't know anything. We can know a lot about how they lived, their houses, what they ate. Uh, We can know a lot about other kinds of interactions like things that they traded or used in all kinds of different ways. And that can give us some clues to a lot of details of how they live. Like we know that they had rituals. We know that they had certain ways of burying people respectfully or ritually. We're pretty sure that they had stories that they had myths because some of the depictions represent what seem to be what archaeologists call scenes, like where it seems to represent part of a story, where there's multiple figures that seem to be maybe doing something. But we can't tell you what that story was exactly. I mean, people can speculate about it, but they can never know definitively what people believed and what their arrangements were within their religions. But what I thought was really interesting that some archaeologists can say definitively, is that just having culture 
is probably what mattered. So having culture meaning having myths, maybe shared myths, maybe a sort of tradition of certain kinds of rituals that people, even though they were in small hunter-gatherer bands that would have followed games. So this is when Europe was in an ice age, right? It was not conditions that exist in most of Europe today, nor anywhere on Earth today, really, where human beings have significant populations. But they did back then. And interestingly, they might have been competing for resources with another hominid species, the Neanderthals, whom they might have overlapped. Um, Certainly, they overlapped with Neanderthals at some point. They might have encountered competition for resources during this ice age. And it could have been these cultural, and that's why there's an explosion of it, right, during the Upper Paleolithic, that it could have been the competition for fairly limited resources and the difficulty of living in an Ice Age environment that helped humans band together and their shared culture, their shared myths, their shared rituals, their shared art, uh, whatever that meant to them. It might not have been art in our sense of art, but whatever it was for them, it may have given them an evolutionary advantage because ultimately, you know, we won. There are no more Neanderthals on Earth except for the little bit that exists in us. All right? artists interpret alone. <laughs> but that's why yeah. I loved reading about is that this communication of knowledge across time and across people gave them this evolutionary advantage. Um, but, you know, the key part again is that art uh, all these things that are interpretable. So there are these artifacts that we have, but then that's really about all we have. And we've done a, a, a wonderful job uh, of taking these objects and then running with them. Might you talk about how we have run with our conceptions of that time, which really cannot be fully understood? Yeah. And so I cover this in the first two chapters of the book, And I go through a couple of examples, just very briefly, of actual figurines that are called goddess figurines. So first of all, the very idea that we would take an object, a figurine that represents a woman from 17,000 years ago or 25,000 years ago, and we would call it a Venus or we would consider it a goddess, it's a huge interpretive leap. It's an imposition of our culture, and it's an appropriation of this object from the past that we cannot say definitively whether this ever would have represented a goddess in the distant past. And yet we call them goddesses. We call them all Venus figurines or goddess figurines, although there are people today in some textbooks in art history and so on who now call it like the woman of Willendorf. The Venus of Willendorf is one of the most famous ancient figurines. And our assumptions about prehistory are pretty easy to check because there are so many great prehistorians, including women archaeologists out there, like that book that I mentioned, Ancient Goddesses, who really give us what I find to be completely fascinating information about each of these cases where these kinds of figurines were found. And they can tell us what we do know about the culture, what archaeologists can tell us or speculate more reasonably about. And yet we still feel empowered and bound to these old interpretations of them, most of which stem from the mid-19th century. And that is in the earliest days of archaeology as a science, when the methodologies and the theories that 
people were applying to all this stuff that they were finding were nothing like what they are today. So we have so much better methods and so many better uh, scientific ways of understanding. Like, for instance, you need to know the context. The text is the object, right? The text is the little statuette or figurine or drawing or scratching in rocks or whatever you have. The context is everything that goes with that. So, for instance, where exactly did you find that figurine? At what level of the soil? That can help you date it. It can help you perhaps find other objects at a similar level of the soil that can build a picture that helps you in an interpretive effort of any kind about that ancient culture. The earliest archaeologists didn't pay any attention to those kinds of contextual clues. They, for the most part, were just trying to find stuff that they thought was valuable. And then, like I say, they would map these wild interpretations onto them that matched our ideas of statues of women. So the first figurine that gets called Venus is this very slim girl. It is just a torso and legs. It does have what's called a vulvic notch. So there is a clear indication of the gender. But it seemed, I guess, immodest to people back then. So it was found at La Logerie Haute, I think, which is in the Vézère Valley uh, near the a town of Les Aisies de Tayac in France. And it's a really cool object. It's really interesting to look at, and you should go look up pictures of it. She's often called La Venus Pudique, which means the Immodest Venus. And it's in response to La Venus Pudica, which is the Italian name or Latin name for these Venus figurines from classical culture where Venus is rising out of her bath and she's naked, but her hands and arms are covering her private parts. And you can go look at those as well. And so when these Europeans in the 19th century, this was the first figurine of a human found, this immodest Venus in France, they said, oh, she's like the Venus, except she's immodest. She doesn't have arms covering her private parts. And that's a really huge imposition of our culture and an appropriation of this past object, but it's stuck for, you know, up until today. We still call a lot of these objects Venuses, even though that poses huge epistemological problems. When Randall White, who's a really good prehistorian who works in this area of France, he curated an exhibit in 1986 at the Museum of Natural History in New York City of this upper Paleolithic art. And the goddess of Willendorf is one of the famous figurines from the ancient past. She was found in what is you know now Austria in Willendorf. And she's about five inches high. And she's one of these very fleshy, what most people think of as the goddess figurines from this period. She's got a steatopygus figure, which means really big hips and thighs and belly, maybe pregnant. She's so you know fleshy pendulous breasts and so on. And also very, very featureless, like her hands and legs are very tiny and sort of squeezed together and folded in. She does have an interesting shell cap. And in Greenwich Village in New York City, a huge banner was unfurled of the Venus of Willendorf that was like 12 feet high. And people thought, 
you know, we're, you know, celebrating this exhibit of Paleolithic art at the museum because we love it. It speaks to us as modern artists. You know, Greenwich Village is sort of the artsy part of New York City, or at least it was at the time. And Randall White was like, this just poses a huge number of problems about our ideas of art and culture and how we're connecting to it that you don't need to know a lot of context. But if you know a little context, like the fact that that figurine is only five inches high, what does that mean? But it started as this 19th century Victorian male appropriation of this stuff started us on a path that continues to this day. And one other little point I want to make about that is that these 19th century men did not see this matriarchal, prehistoric, goddess-dominated past as a positive thing. They thought, well, those were savages. Those were these, you know, distant ancestors that were not as civilized and superior as we are. They definitely invoked a social evolutionary perspective that saw all cultures as having started as savage and eventually progressing up toward where they were, which was civilized, which is not a perspective that social scientists agree with today. And and people have been questioning it since not long after it was proposed because people started doing actual fieldwork, going and living with other human beings around the world in these so-called primitive cultures. And they were able to report how very complex and beautiful and deeply meaningful all their cultures were. Social scientists have gotten past that biased, judgmental perspective of these people being somehow lesser. But those men thought, oh, thank goodness the patriarchy and the one true God came along and corrected things, right? And now we have civilization, which is so superior. It wasn't until later in the 20th century that people started saying, well, what if that goddess-dominated matriarchy was superior? And that really spoke to these second-wave feminists in the 60s and 70s, which is when this other archaeologist trained in this whole old-school way of thinking about the ancient past, this archaeologist named Maria Gimbutis from Lithuania. She started writing books in English. She was a professor first at Harvard and then UCLA. So she was a very authoritative figure, and she was saying, yes, this past was beautiful. It was wonderful. You know, until these crazy Kurgans, these horse-riding patriarchs from the Russian steppes came in and started, you know, slaughtering, and they brought their warlike patriarchal ways to what had been a beautiful, sedentary, peaceful, Neolithic period in Europe. She thinks this happened, this transition, about 3,000 years ago. So this spoke to a lot of feminists of that era, and it all still trickles down into our popular culture and our literature. Our literature and popular culture embraces this idea, but again, each filmmaker, each writer has their own take on it, their own interpretation. And what I saw was patterns in how these stories of goddesses started becoming obvious. On this edition of Georgia College Connections, you're listening to a conversation with Georgia College Women's and Gender Studies and Literature Professor Mary Magulik about her book, The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture. The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture is out now from the University Press of Mississippi. Mary Magulik joined me to talk about her book in March 2022.
I want to bring us closer to the time in which you uh, researched in the book. Of course, you described a male-dominated past in which we were basically writing our own belief systems onto these objects that we found and many times were blissfully ignorant or maybe even destroyed the context in which we could have found out more about the ways that these items operated within their societies when they were created. But I... I want to ask you to talk about wresting back the meaning from these stories from that male-dominated past and how we have come uh, to this present where we are in a, a somewhat more equitable society and how have more modern depictions of this powerful woman or goddess myth, as you're saying, because although uh, there are many things pointing to a prehistory that has these matriarchal societies, there is no definitive evidence that they did exist at this point. Am I correct? In right. And most prehistorians think it's highly unlikely that they mm-hmm. ever would have existed for an extended period of time in, mm-hmm. in the distant past, a, a matriarchy or any kind of a unitary goddess or even just any goddess specific goddess tradition couldn't have lasted for tens of thousands of years over a pretty wide geographic region. But we've taken these stories that we've written onto these objects somewhat as articles of faith. And they have created um, what you describe in the book as a goddess culture uh, mm-hmm. that is actually, as you say, one of the fastest or largest growing religions in the modern world. Yes. Uh, might you talk about the period from the discoveries of these objects on which we've written our stories to the present, where goddesses and powerful women are very present on the modern cultural scene, uh, but yet are they... Uh, marking a change in our society in a positive or negative direction? Well, I will say that I think these feminists from the 60s and 70s who really felt inspired by the work of Maria Gimbutas and who, you know, published many books of their own speculating about this idea of a matriarchal past, of a goddess-dominated prehistory as something very beautiful. Like I said, it has a lot of what appear on the surface to be very appealing aspects to it. The the myth itself offers a lot of beautiful practices and rituals. It is considered the fastest growing religion today. There's over, well, as of like the early 2000s, there were over 200,000 actual adherents or practitioners of various traditions, everything from goddess spirituality to Wicca to New Age types of religions to even, you know, no official religion, but maybe just this idea that, you know, oh, thank the goddess or something, you know, or just the idea that, yes, well, you know, back when there were goddesses kind of thing. People have bumper stickers, T-shirts. There are tourism efforts. It all stays, though, at a fairly grassroots level. It's not ever achieved quite the social power that many other male-dominated religious traditions have. And so, yeah, you might really ask, you know, what's wrong with it? It's just this small scale. You know, it's just these women celebrating being women. It's kind of beautiful, which it is. And I have actually practiced. Uh, I've been at events where 
it is dominated by this sort of goddess spirituality where, you know, somebody beats a drum and people say these prayers that are about celebrating nature and honoring the earth and things like that and maybe sit around a bonfire. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful subculture, I would say. But the literary and pop culture versions of what goes behind goddess culture itself and even some of the imagery with, from within the culture, when you start really analyzing them as a mythologist, I analyze them. As a literary and film studies scholar, I analyze them. And I see that there's symbolism, there's metaphorical truths being communicated that are problematic. For instance, women are often perceived as more emotional better able to tune into their emotions. And that can sound like a positive thing. They can be more nurturing. They can be more loving. They're sort of naturally mothers. They're more in tune with the earth is sometimes a big part of it. They can help heal the earth. It all sounds very positive. But if you cast woman as this more emotional, more natural being, that's problematic from the perspective of feminism because it essentializes us. It sort of casts you in this role, which is sort of scientifically meaningless. How can one gender be more natural than another gender? Or how can one gender be more inherently able to be emotional than another gender? And it also sets up a level of expectations that may not be able to be fulfilled simply based upon one's gender or sexuality. Um, And, you know, obviously we can see where things like that may go very astray. Right. And we could argue have gone astray. We've had a lot of problems in our society caused by these assumptions and expectations based on gender. So Simone de Beauvoir talked about this, right, in her famous work. She's a French philosopher who wrote a book called The Second Sex in 1949 that characterizes woman as the second sex throughout all of our history, throughout all of our culture. We are the other to the primary subject, which is, of course, always man. Woman is the quintessential, the essential, the final, ultimate other, and Of course, there are other levels of otherness or alterity in our culture as well. So, you know, people of color are the other as well. So the white man is generally superior to any other race of man. But all of the men are still above all of the women. We see that in the suffragette movement and the betrayal of 19th century where the uh, right to vote was given to black men. And women were completely cut out for a number of decades afterwards. And that was, right. you know, the betrayal of two subsets of our population working together towards the equality in the vote. Right. And one was completely cast aside, you know, uh, and a seeming victory was was gained. Yes. And it's not just the suffragette movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, women didn't have the right to have bank accounts. They mm-hmm. didn't have the right to own property. They didn't have the right to be employed in certain kinds of jobs. So women have definitely been second-class citizens in our society. I mean, de Beauvoir's points from way back over 70 years ago still hold true in large ways in our culture. Like I said, in the film and television industry, there's still a very small percentage of women who are working in that. In our political arena, there's a much smaller percentage of women 
who are in Congress, and not only that, or holding roles of power, not only are they less represented in all areas, all of the, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs, I think, has a very small percentage of women. You can look all these things up. There's all kinds of sites out there that track all of this. And and this is all a small proportion of people who make up 50% of our population. Right. And, And so not only that, even if you're, you know, if you're not on board, if you think, well, you know, feminism, it's it's so angry, it's so hateful of men, which is often the kind of, uh, even a lot of women are afraid to call themselves feminists because there's so much public uh, dislike of feminists, right? And a lot of uh, shaming of them or um, vilifying of feminists. But it's also problematic that when we do have powerful women, when we do have women that somehow manage to rise above that, they're often really despised and really hate, hated in a way that is dangerous to them. So we really dislike women to have roles of power in many cases, even if they do get, you know, rise above things. I wouldn't say that things are better, but I will say that the women who were trying to celebrate this myth and to interpret it in all different kinds of ways and to do studies on it had good-hearted intentions, but maybe they didn't fully perceive the way it does reduce us to these beings of emotion and nurturing. And often sexuality is a big part of it as well. Like you mentioned, people can go Google what these goddesses look like or powerful women look like, and I'm sure they're all very sexualized because it still keeps them in this sort of role of being these more emotional, more natural beings. All human beings are beings of nature. We're all beings of the nature of this planet Earth. There's no scientific ability to bend the fact that just because of your gender, you're somehow more natural or more capable of emotion. And it puts men on the side of, and I have some charts in the book that show this, but men are on the side of being scientific and rational and cultured and uh, more capable in the many representations ways. The be- you know, lead us to believe these things right. about this one gender over the other. Right. But I, I want to bring us back because, of course, you're looking at a, a subset of stories right. and trying to derive larger meanings from the depiction of women in these stories. From your research in the writing of this book, what do we need to do to begin to start creating more holistic uh, representations of women now and going forward? So I would say the number one thing is to let women have a full range of possibilities within their characters. So they don't have to be either perfect or perfectly awful. So in, as I said, film and television these goddesses are terrible, right? They're always forces of chaos and death and darkness, and their their emotions are uh, running riot over the worlds they exist in in a very negative way. Or in the romanticized versions by these hopeful, you know, 70s feminist writers, they're very beautiful and romanticized, but neither of those give space for women to just be who we are, which is human beings with a full range of all the things that human beings can accomplish or experience or suffer from, et cetera. There are some writers like N.K. Jemisin, like Tomi Adeyemi, like Madeline Miller, like 
Alice Walker and Leslie Marmon Silco, who have already created characters. And some of these go back, like uh, Alice Walker's Possessing the Secret of Joy goes back to the early 90s. There have been writers who have been offering us more complex views of women's lives and of women characters, even who are goddess characters. And I think we can pay more attention to those. We can write and create more of those, perhaps have some in film. I mean, I think there are complex characters in films. There's a film called Fast Color, directed by a woman, Julia Hart. And it's not exactly a goddess film, but it is a a film of a very, very powerful woman. That's really unusual. She's a more complex character. The thing about these more complex characters is that they're more complex. And that means they're sometimes less easy for people to latch on to. I think in general in our culture, people fall into camps that, I don't know, maybe coordinate with some political parties as well, where there are people who want easy answers, who want black and white. They want, yes, women can either be, you know, wonderful angels or horrible sinning witches, Whenever you have these things that get reduced to these simplified versions, that tends to be considered a more simplified way of like perceiving the world and not allowing for complexity. What about somebody who's sort of in between? Or what about a situation that's a little bit gray? Complex characters sort of dwell in that more gray space, you could say, right? So most scholars who study art they like the complexities. They like the films that have an ambiguous ending. So we like grappling with the things that have more complexity, like these goddess characters who are neither perfect nor evil, but who are just women who somehow have access to a lot of power, maybe born that way, maybe in some of the cases I look at, they sort of come into that power in different ways, who are celebrating something that I think metaphorically is about women being able to be women in ways that can be celebrated, that maybe can tap into some power, but can also just be in charge of who they become. So they can have some agency, what we call in in feminist, in a lot of feminist theory, people really look for characters with agency. We've had women characters with agency going way back. You can look at fairy tales. Agencies and they own their present and can own their past and make actions that, you know, uh, for better or for worse, help determine where they are going. But one that is not cast or foisted upon them. Right. If you have agency, you can act. You can act in a way that advances your story. You might make a right choice. You might make a wrong choice, but you have the agency to determine what is going on in your story. You make your own path. And these characters with agency that I look at, and there, like I said, there have been characters from fairy tales, East of the Sun, West of the Moon, is a fairy tale collected in Norway, maybe in the late 19th century. 
Um, it's got a character who first goes off and marries a bear to save her family. This big white bear comes to their house and says, you know, it's a fairy tale, so magical things can happen. And the bear says, you know, oh, I want to marry your beautiful youngest daughter. I'll make you wealthy. And this family is starving. And they don't force the daughter to do it, but the father persuades her. And as she's going off with the back, the bear, he puts her on her his back and runs far away through the forest to their home. And he says, as, he, as she's getting on his back, are you afraid? No, she wasn't, exclamation point, the text says. Later, there's an interdiction. She can't look at him at night. She breaks the interdiction at some point. So at that point, it's revealed that he was really this handsome prince who had been enchanted to look like a bear for a year. But if she had just not looked at him, if she had just obeyed the interdiction, you know, not to look at him at night for one year, they could have, he could have stayed with her forever. But he gets sucked away to this place that is east of the sun, west of the moon instead, which is not where he wants to be and not where she wants him to be because he's actually been a really good husband. So she goes on a quest. She goes on a quest to get her man back. And at one point, and you got to imagine, where is this place east of the sun, west of the moon? I imagine it in outer space, right? And at one point, she gets help from a lot of from old women and the winds and the the women are like, maybe the wind could the east wind could blow you up there. And all the winds try, but the only wind that's strong enough, like people in Norway know what the strongest wind is, right? It's the north wind, that wind of winter. And so at some point, the north wind blows her. And just as he's about to blow her into outer space, he says, are you afraid? And once again, the text just has one little line. No, she wasn't. And off she goes onto this adventure and she does get her husband back and has a happy ending. You can think of The Wizard of Oz with Dorothy, right? She had a lot of agency. I mean, she had helpers, but she's a really strong female character who gets to go on her own little quest. We've had women like this and we still have women like this, including at the level of goddess characters. So I think we have to pay attention to more of them and celebrate them and focus on them the way I do in the final chapter. They're not perfect. I'm not saying they have all the answers to everything, but they're complex characters who are really worth attending to, who have a better storyline from a feminist perspective where uh, and I think they could be better, better role models, not only for women. And by the way, there's really interesting male characters in these works as well, who also it's not very ultimately fulfilling for either sex. This is de Beauvoir's argument way back, you know, in the 40s in the second sex, that neither gender is served very well by pitting women or putting them into these categories where they have to fit these absolutes. Why should men be excluded from their emotional sides, their nurturing side? Men can be very nurturing, and being nurturing can be very fulfilling, whether you're male or female or whatever your gender is. So there have been a lot of reconsiderations of gender in, by recent feminists that are, I think, really, really interesting and that a lot of these books ex explore as well, that none of us have to fit into absolutes. None of us have to fit into predetermined categories or stories. And it's very exciting that we just have so many writers today. We have so many filmmakers. We have so many new ways of interpreting this myth and exploring it. And a lot of it is out there.
So it already exists. I hope people find it. I hope people celebrate it. And I hope more people keep creating new versions of these kinds of powerful women, even goddess characters, that can have a full range of human potential, that can show women as just wonderful beings or complex beings or maybe troubled beings, but who are not just falling into these old stereotypical extremes. And so you've lived with this book for a long time. You've um, uh, shared mental space with these goddesses and these powerful women and um, the creators and the characters who would bring them down or lift them up. What stories are you craving now? Well, kind of like I just said, I really love these books like N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth Trilogy. I really recommend it. And there's a lot of other things out there. And I'm actually lately reading a lot of books with witch characters, W-I-T-C-H, because I'm thinking about another book where I would look at witches in literature. And of course, there there are a lot. And you can go way back. You can go into fairy tales. You can go in. And some of these fairy tales, by the way, might be thousands of years old. That one I, I gave you some details on, East of the Sun, West of the Moon, is at least a couple thousand years old because there's a, a previous Latin version of it called Cupid and Psyche that was published in the second century. And maybe they go even farther back. It's really hard to trace for sure, but there is some research out there that's suggesting some of them may be thousands and thousands of years old. There's also another like medieval character is Scheherazade from the Arabian Nights or the Thousand and One Nights. She was a really interesting female character from way back then. So I've been focusing now, whereas previously I was really just looking for characters who could be argued to be a goddess or whose worlds were connected to goddess culture in some way or the goddess myth. Uh, now I'm looking for characters who are connected to w- witchcraft or just being accused of being witches even or being characterized as witches as perhaps metaphors for feminism. In other words, that these women, often the people that were called witches during the witch hunts in medieval Europe and so on, they were just women who were by themselves, who were living at the outskirts of their villages maybe because there was no place for them. If you were a woman on your own, right, if you were not married You had the option to maybe be a nun, but not everybody was allowed to be a nun and not everybody wanted to be a nun, but maybe you even were married. Maybe you had children, but then your husband dies. What can you do? You're not allowed to own property. You're not allowed to maybe live in the same house. You're not allowed to do a lot of jobs, but maybe you could be a healer, right? So a lot of these women were on the outskirts of their villages or whatever in the woods a little bit or in a cave or something as healers. And they were easy to scapegoat. If something goes wrong, it's like, oh, is that woman? She put the pox on me. So women were often put into these very difficult categories of being a witch and then tormented, persecuted, killed. So many women were killed as witches. But there's a lot of stories about witches where the witches embody this sense of women finding a place for themselves, finding agency, just trying to survive on the outskirts of society. And I think that that's a good metaphor for 
for powerful women generally. Like we've had to hide our powers, hide our talents through a lot of history, right? Because there wasn't often a place for women to be openly intelligent, to be openly powerful, to be openly in charge. So they would have to find ways to work through whatever channels they could find, influencing the men that they were connected to or whispering into their ears, you know, or whatever, being their lovers and then seducing them into doing things that they thought maybe would make society better or, or whatever their goal might be, which is, by the way, what Scheherazade does, right? She's married to a man who's killing a new woman every night because he decides he doesn't trust women because his previous wife cheated on him. And Scheherazade, who is described as just incredibly learned and wise and beautiful, she studied everything, medicine and art and poetry and healing and sciences and history and all of this. And she says to her father, the king's advisor, you know, marry me to the king. And, you know, her father is horrified, but she persuades him because she's really smart. And she tells the king a new story every night. And her stories are not just a way to keep herself alive because she ends every morning on a cliffhanger. And so her husband's like, all right, I guess you can stay alive for one more night because I have to hear the end of that story. But she also uses her stories to teach her king to be a better king, to be a better man, to learn compassion, to learn wisdom and generosity and the things that would make a good ruler. And so, yeah, those are the kinds of things I'm looking in, Al, for books with characters who are maybe described or considered witches, and particularly the ones that have this sort of connection to the women being somewhat independent and interesting characters. So, Well, Mary Magulik, the author of the new book, The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture, I hope that you will come back and share what you find on this new road that you're taking off on. But for today... I want to thank you for coming and talking to our radio audience about the book, The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture. Thank you so much, Daniel, and thank you to everyone who took the time to listen. You've been listening to a conversation with Georgia College Women's and Gender Studies and Literature Professor Mary Magulik about her book, The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture. The Goddess Myth in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture is out now from the University Press of Mississippi. Mary Magulik talked to me about her book, The Goddess Myth, in March 2022. On behalf of WRGC 88.3 FM, I have been your host, Daniel McDonald. I want to thank you for joining me for this edition of Georgia College Connections. I hope you enjoyed our time together, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you again next time.